Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist, and now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like the children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You shall descend to hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. See them. Last week we looked at the greatness of John the Baptist. As Jesus said, he was great. But he was as great as John the Baptist was. Jesus said that he was the least in the kingdom of heaven. And why was he least in the kingdom of heaven? Simply because... He lived prior to the resurrection and the ascension. And he did not see the miracles of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, he was least in the kingdom in that respect. Not in terms of character, of course, because there was no one like him. But he lived on that side of the resurrection and the ascension. Did not see an experience like what most of us Christians have experienced. Now, if you look at verse 12, you might wonder, what in the world is this talking about? That in the days of John, the Baptist of Tanel, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, I've told you before, 
Words mean what the context says, right? You let the context govern it. Well, actually here, this word is only used four times in two verses in the New Testament. Used only four times and in two verses. So, in that regard, how are we to understand then this passage? Well, that word, basically, the best way to understand it is to see how Luke uses it uh, in the companion story. And that gives us some insight into the meaning of the verse. So I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed unto John, since the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and every way, everyone is forcing his way into it. Now what it, what it means there, and what this word basically entails is that you just don't stumble into the kingdom of God. You don't just approach the kingdom of God with this attitude, oh, well, salvation, oh, okay, I guess I'll be a Christian. No. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to want it. You've got to seize it. The word there. Is translated in other areas similar to an action of seizing something, determination, taking it aggressively. This is how you have to approach the kingdom of God. It's not haphazard. You have to want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we see that this is what it means. It says, those take it by force meaning they they want that salvation offered by the Lord Jesus. Now, in that regard, I want us to take a look at several passages that hopefully will clarify uh, this and uh, drive it home to us. Turn over with me to Matthew 21. We'll look ahead to Matthew 21 and look at verses 28 to 32. Jesus is going to give two parables here, and they both are essentially speaking to the same thing, just a different parable. first parable is the parable of the two sons. And he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir, and he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not, yet afterward regretted and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. So the first parable was a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders 
of national Israel to a large degree who John the Baptist came offering them the, the Messiah who was to come and they would not do it. They would not come and seize the kingdom as it were by force. But who did? The tax collectors, sinners, the prostitutes, they repented. They accepted it. They came into the kingdom. They laid hold of it when it was offered. They believed in it. Then he gives another parable. Verse 33 and following. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers, went on a journey, and when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce, and the vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third, and he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward he sent his son to them, saying, Thou respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of their proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Thus came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, be given to a nation producing the fruit of it, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them, and when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes, because they held him to be a prophet. Now, if you, as we go through Matthew and Jesus' parables, you're going to see that Jesus gave the parables not so much to enlighten people, but to keep them in the dark. But here are two parables that are an exception to that general rule. He gave it so that they would understand. And when he finished his second parable, it says the scribes and the Pharisees, they got the point who he's talking about. You're talking about us, Jesus, aren't you? We were the vineyard, national Israel. We were given all the promises of God. And who are all these slaves that were sent into the, uh, the vineyard? The prophets. But did they listen to the prophets? No, they didn't listen to the prophets. Then the, the, the landowner says, I'll send them my son. I'm the, the landowner. They're going to listen to my son. No. They said, this is our chance to kill the landowner's son. And they did. Who's he talking about? What's this all about? Jesus is the son. We're talking about God the Father. Jesus is the one who is the son of the landowner killed. And then he says, you know what's going to happen? God, and if you look at Isaiah in these passages about the vineyard, the vineyard is usually a reference to national Israel. 
God said to Israel, What more could I have done for you than I haven't done? I've given you everything, but what did you do with it? Nothing. And so it says, here's what God's going to do. He's going to rip it away from those and give it to another people who will appreciate it. You know who he's talking about in, in essence here? is the Gentiles. The Gentile people. And so, what we see here, back in our text in my, uh, Matthew, the publicans, the tax collectors, that is, the harlots, they are forcing their way into the kingdom of God. The Gentiles are forcing their way into the kingdom of God. Remember, I've alluded to this before, when Paul and Barnabas were on their missionary journeys, and they were preaching in the synagogues, they would always go to the synagogues, remember, first, Jesus says, why did they go there first? Because uh, the Jews deserved the opportunity to believe the Messiah. After all, they were the covenant people of God. But when these Jews refused, Paul says, finally, he says, I've had it with you. We're going to the Gentiles. And so they took the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 13, and the Gentiles forced their way into the kingdom by believing the gospel. You know, all this, what this shows to us, to whom much is given, much is expected. And the greater the light is shown, the greater the responsibility. I cannot help but think of here. We were discussing this at Presbyterian and other uh, places around the world. How the greater receptivity in other places of the world is to the gospel and how hardened Americans have become to the gospel. How resistant they have. And as I will refer to in a moment, the attitude among many Americans, we have been privileged in, a, in an amazing way and yet we are accountable to that. And what the Lord will do, he says, if you don't want it, you don't take it, I will give it to some others. One of the worst things that can ever happen is that, as Amos says, is there to be a famine of the Word of God. You know what God does when he meets resistance to the proclaimed message? When there's a, uh, God says, I will not always strive with men. I will not always strive. There will come a time when God will cut them off. And what happens here, Amos says, when God comes to judgment, he will take away the word of God from the land. He will remove the preachers. And that is a sign that the cataclysmic judgment is at hand that God has given up on a people. How many times he woos them, but they would not come. And so what we see here is that Jesus said in our text in Matthew 11, Jesus mentions here, he says, and if, he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. 
Now, to get an idea of what Jesus is really meaning with that statement, I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 24. This is on the day of resurrection. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. Runs across two disciples. Not of the twelve, but two disciples of his. And they're all dejected. Uh, Now, what he said, I want to point to verse 25 and following. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. As Jesus would say here, he says the Old Testament is a story and a testimony about me. I'm the theme of the Old Testament. I'm the theme of the law. I'm the theme of the prophets. All the sacrificial system points to me. I am the substance to the shadows in the Old Testament. And what he's saying is the glory of the Old Testament has been eclipsed with the coming of John the Baptist, and then the Lord, who was the forerunner of the, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. John the Baptist, he said all our prophecy was leading up. Now with, with John's coming, there was a period of time in Malachi, we're going to take a look at a, pro, a prophecy that has to do in a moment with John the Baptist. The book of Malachi basically ends with a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. And then there will be 400 years of silence. No prophecy for 400 years. And then John the Baptist will emerge on the scene. I just want us to get an idea. I'm emphasizing 400 years. Nothing happening. Imagine the people, was the Messiah going to come? Is he going to come? Decades, generation after generation after generation. The promises of God never fail. And so, as Jesus says here, uh, there are some who are taking the kingdom by force, who want it. It's those who see the need for a Savior who are getting it. Those who do, don't see a need for a Savior, who are self-righteous, like you, scribes and Pharisees, you won't get it. So Jesus says here, if you look at verse 15, and if you care to accept it. Yeah, one thing is true about when the gospel is preached, we do make decisions. You know, sometimes uh, my, my zealous Calvinist friends, and we're going to see there's a great interplay here of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Someone says, well, you don't talk about choosing Jesus. Well, yeah, we do choose Jesus. Do we accept Jesus? Yeah, we did accept Jesus. When the gospel is offered, people are expected to accept it. What God is saying, God expected the people to hear John the Baptist and to repent of their sins. 
which was preparatory for the Messiah. That's what he expected. So Jesus says, and if you care to accept it, accept what? The kingdom of God. That's what you, if you care to accept. Or you, so when that gospel is preached, what are you going to do about it? Notice here that it says, uh, <clears throat> those were expected to force their way into the kingdom by receiving the testimony of John. That's why he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he said, if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. Well, well, who is this Elijah to come? Well, turn over to Malachi to that last prophecy of the Old Testament. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now Jesus, well, when John the Baptist was preaching, people said, Are you Elijah? Or are you the Messiah? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. But Jesus says, in a way, he is Elijah. Now he's not Elijah reincarnated. But he is of the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist was of the same mold of a prophet as Elijah was. Well, what was Elijah like? Well, uh, we're told that, that Elijah, he preached repentance, did he not? Elijah uh, was very much like John the Baptist. He was a man of great austerity. Uh, zealous for God, bold in reproving of sin like John, active to call upon an apostate people to and their duty to come to the living God. Now how so? So how is John the Baptist like Elijah? Well, I just want to remind you of that great story about Elijah recorded in 1 Kings on Mount Carmel Here's what Elijah is concerned about. He says to the people, he says, quit vacillating between two opinions. If God is God, if Jehovah is God, follow Jehovah. But if Baal is God, follow Baal. What was happening was they were trying to worship both Jehovah and Baal. They were wishy-washy. They were eclecticists. They wanted to cover all the bases, we could say. And Elijah came, comes along and says, Now look, it, no, it's, that's not it. You've got to decide who you're going to serve. Who is the real God? And of course, he had the test. And so John the Baptist was of the same mindset. He is that Elijah. Jesus said he is that Elijah. Now John the Baptist... His ministry, as we said, was preparatory. The coming of Christ, there in Malachi 4, when it talks about that coming of that great and terrible day, notice how the prophecy ends. Again, it says, let me just read it again. It says, 
And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with curse. Now I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 3, when John was baptizing, and I want you to look at verses 10 through 12. And remember here, John was baptizing in the Jordan, a baptism of repentance. The Sadducees and others, they are coming to him wanting to be baptized. And he said, who warns you, O vipers, to flee the wrath to come? And here's what he says in verse 10. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is saying, you coming to me for repentance? Well, where's your repentant heart? It's not there. He says, here's what God's already uh, doing. He's got an axe, and he's ready to cut down this tree. What tree is he talking about? National Israel. He's ready to cut down this tree. And he says, now, I'm only testifying. My baptism is one of repentance to prepare the way for the one, the Messiah, who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, either you're going to be baptized. Here's the teaching. Uh, destinies of us all. Either we're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit or we're going to be baptized with fire. Pray that you don't be the one baptized with fire. Because he says, here's what uh, the Messiah will do. He's come and he's got that fork and he takes that and he throws that up uh, and then the chaff, it goes into the winds and it says he gathered and it's separated from the wheat, and he takes that chaff and he will burn it up. What John was saying to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you are the chaff because you aren't coming to confess your sins. You're not coming to repent, and therefore you'll be the one that will be burned up. So, John the Baptist was one who came and was like Elijah in spirit. He was bold. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He called the people to repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ, who was already at hand. So, Jesus says in our text... If you've got ears to hear, you better hear. Now, what ears are you talking about? Spiritual ears. Do you have spiritual ears to hear the truth? Do you have spiritual ears to understand that you are a sinner deserving the wrath of God and that apart from Jesus there's no hope? Do you have those kinds of spiritual ears? You better, he says. But then what did Jesus say? 
Do you have these ears to hear? But what will I compare this generation to? He says, But to what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to their other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. First of all, you know, the worst thing for any generation to happen to any generation is to have sound preaching and do nothing about it. That's the worst thing that can happen to any generation. Have sound preaching and do nothing about it. So Jesus is talking about, what's this generation? You had John the Baptist and you have me, and what are you doing about it? Nothing. He says, I'm going to tell you what you like. And he, this imagery of verses 17 and verse 18, when you're growing up, now usually most boys play with boys and girls play with girls. Sometimes they would, there would be some girls playing with the boys. And you're growing up, what do the girls always want to do? Let's play house. The guys, I'm not going to play house. I'll play war, but I'm not going to play hacks. <laughs> well, the Jewish children, they, they were no different than, than other children. They were imitating their, uh, their parents, what they saw. And so they were saying, well, let's play a wedding. Who's going to be the bride? Who's going to be the groom? I mean, and, and all this. And it says, we played the flute for you. You know, marriages are to be exciting, exuberant times. So someone says, we're going to play wedding. No, we don't want to play wedding, so we're going to play funeral. That's hard to imagine, but that's what it says. We're going to play funeral. So at a funeral, what are you going to do? You're going to have your mourners. Remember uh, the, the hired mourners? They did have hired mourners to weep and wail. So let's play uh, funeral. And someone said, no, we don't want to play funeral either. Well, what do you want to do? The thing about it is, and, and, and here's what Jesus does in, in verse 18 and 19. He says, For John came neither eating and drinking. John uh, <clears throat> is one who is like the mourner. He says, Repent, or the judgment of God is coming against you. Now, how did you respond to John? He's got a demon. So you don't want John. So, what about the Son of Man? You want to accept him? It says he came eating and drinking. What they say about him? Well, he's a gluttonous and a, and a, and a drunkard. So they ain't going to accept him. Or who's that? That's Jesus, the Messiah. So you ain't going to accept either. So you're not accepting John's message. You don't want to play and mourn for your sins. You don't want to mourn for your sins. And are you going to respond to this uh, great... Happiness, this joy, this light that is given to you out of darkness. Do you want that? No, you don't want that either. So you don't want John. You don't want the Son of Man. You don't want either of them. So what's left for you? Well, Jesus says, 
You know, what they said about Jesus was, and the reason they didn't accept Jesus, well, he's a friend of tax gatherers, sinners. <laughs> he associates with these people. Now, why did Jesus associate with them? Because God was seeking to reach them with the Gospels while he was associating with them. They didn't want to do that. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Now, the point here is, the children of wisdom would have believed John the Baptist. And if you believe John the Baptist, you'll believe the Messiah. Children of wisdom are known by their deeds. And what deed is that? They believe John. And they believe the Son of Man. But who believed? Was it Israel? Was it the one who was given all this privilege? No. It was the sinners. It was the harlots. They're the ones that grabbed the kingdom by force, as it were. They accepted it. But the others, they rejected. They rejected John. They rejected Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to this generation, You chose neither of them, therefore you showed you had no wisdom at all. Now, turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 38 through verse, verse 44. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would come riding on a foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. We're told in verse 38 that the crowds, they were praising God joyfully with a loud voice, verse 37, for all the miracles that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. The Messiah had come. The Messiah had come to the holy city. And what was his reception? To that, for the most part, rejection. Consequently, he says, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Here's what's going to happen to you, Jerusalem. They will throw up a bank. What that means is a siege. And that's exactly what the Romans did. 
And then they will tear down every stone, and that's exactly what they did to the temple. That's exactly what they did to every building in Jerusalem. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D., everything was leveled. Josephus says they covered the land with, uh, with uh, sold it with salt over it. Jerusalem gone off the face of the earth. Because... You did not recognize the day of your visitation. Remember, it's not just the, the, uh, the refusal to accept Jesus himself in his personal preaching. Remember what Jesus said about his disciples when he sent them out. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. Everybody who rejects gospel preaching has rejected Jesus. And the consequences are horrifying to reject Jesus. So, turning back to Matthew 11. Having said all of this, it says, Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of the miracles had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, he's going to condemn, well, let me just read... Go on and read the other verses. Nevertheless, I said to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to hell. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, we are told already, and as we've been going through Matthew, where was Jesus' headquarters? Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee. Where was Chorazin and Bethsaida? Just a couple miles north of, of Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee. And the majority of Jesus' miracles were in Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And what was the response? None. None. Zero for the most part. They saw these miracles. And again, what is the purpose of a miracle? But to create a sense of awe, wonder, so that you listen to the one doing the miracle. That's the purpose of a miracle. The purpose of the miracle is to draw attention to the one who's performing it, to listen to what he says. And Jesus says, I did all these things to you, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, and Chorazin, and what did you do? Nothing. Now, Tyre and Sidon were uh, cities on the Mediterranean in Israel, known, known for their wickedness. How was Sodom known? Well, you know how Sodom was known for its wickedness. And yet, here's what Jesus is saying. And this is powerful. Because he, he, he does, this is not a maybe. He says, 
If I had done these miracles, if I'd been around and done these miracles in Tyre, in Sidon, in Sodom, they would have repented and they would still be around today. You know what's an example of that? The preacher who didn't want to preach to Nineveh, Jonah. You know why he didn't want to preach to Nineveh? Because by prophecy he understood that Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, that God was going to raise up the Assyrians and they would be a real serious threat to Israel. And they would decimate Israel. And Jonah, when God says, I want you to go preach to Nineveh, he says, no, I don't think so. And he gets on that ship. You know the story. God will make his preacher get where he wants his preacher to be, even if he has to get the preacher in the belly of a great fish to teach him a lesson. And even then, when he goes to Nineveh and he preaches, what did Jonah say? And he waits outside the city to see what happens to the preaching. And all along, he's waiting to see what will happen. And the king of Nineveh is the one of the first to repent. And the whole city repents. And the preacher, the evangelist, is angry at the repentance. And he says, God, did I not tell you this is what would happen? If I preached repentance, did I not tell you that you're slow to anger and compassionate? I knew it. And now he's upset. I've always said, you don't want to invite Jonah to your mission conference. He's the last guy type of preacher. What Jesus is saying, the same effect of Jonah's preaching at Nineveh would have been the effect if Jesus had preached to Sodom and Gomorrah. How wicked they are. They would have repented. One of the interesting things when I was, I told you about the diary of my great great grandfather, William Otis, one of the, the notes in there and one of the places that I visited, he said there was a, uh, a place, I forgot the name of the city already. But he says, no one wanted to go there because it was notorious for how wicked it was. Nobody wanted to even go and bother to preach to them. But he decided now just to go preach to them, and guess what happened? A bunch of them repent. And then they found out, was able to see that the church that was founded there from that preaching in, in, in 1843. But no one wanted to go and preach there. You know, when George Whitfield was preaching in the uh, Moorfields in London, people told George Whitfield, you better think twice about that, George. You do not want to go there. Remember I told you they, they had uh, bear uh, fighting. They had all kinds of things going on. Uh, others who had heard about Whitfield's success in Bristol decided they'd go and imitate it before Whitfield. And it says the crowd tore the, the table down and they were running for their lives. And when Whitfield arrived, he said, I want to go preach to the Morpheus. Is George, you sure you want to do this? I don't think it's a good idea. 
at least if you go, let's have some guards with you. Well, on his way, the guards got separated, but all the crowd pinned him in. It was like a prize fighter. They all formed a place for him to go preach. And this was a very low-class, notoriously wicked place of London. And guess what happened? People repented. Now, I ought to tell us something. Well, there is a lesson here. You've got to have the courage to even go to some places where it may be a little dangerous. But these are the people that might be the most responsive to the gospel. So go there. And Jesus said they would have repented. And here is the, decree, the, the, the degrees of judgment, as we've seen, that the scripture talks about. Is that it says those who reject the gospel message are going to be suffering in hell worse than, than the wicked people of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. The greatest sin in the world is to reject the gospel message. You know, Jesus talked about what is this generation like that I'm having to deal with? What is our present generation like? It's no better. People don't want a gospel of repentance today. They want a gospel of self-esteem. They want a gospel of how to prosper, how to get along better with other people. Well, now, it's good to get along with other people, but if that is all your gospel is... They want a gospel where all people go to heaven regardless of what they believe and how they live. I want to encourage you to do something, either today or throughout the week. I want you to go on the Internet, and I want you to put in Joel Olstein's views on who goes to heaven. It was an interview, two interviews, Larry King had with Joel Osteen and an interview that Oprah Winfrey had with Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says, with reference, they ask him with reference to the Jews, the Muslims, and the Hindus, here's what he said. I don't know what God's going to do with them. I know that they love God and that they are sincere. Who am I to judge them? Oprah Winfrey asks, Uh, Joel Osteen, are gays going to make it to heaven? And he said, yes, I cannot judge them. Not talking about those who repent and ask to become Christians. No, he is saying by the fact they're still practicing, God accepts them. Who am I to judge them? And then you see a very illuminating view of how evangelistic Oprah Winfrey is in promoting the religion, the new religion of America. She will browbeat anybody who dares to say Jesus is the only way of salvation. You ought to see how relentless she is. Watch it and see for yourself what some of these false prophets are saying. But it is the religion of America now. And I'm telling you, it's going to become more and more serious. And God is drawing the line in the sand. And remember, Jesus said to his preachers, you're going to be hated of all men. 
And if Jesus were around here, he would be hated. If John the Baptist were here, he would be hated because they're too narrow-minded. You, you dare call God's fire? Now, Oprah's talking about this vengeful God, this vengeful God that wants to hurt people? Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. I did these miracles, and you didn't believe me. So what's in store for you? The fires of hell. How dare that gospel be preached today? It's going to get more and more serious, brethren. I'm telling you, the horizon, I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but there are people that are being swayed by the thousands to the new humanist religion, and the gospel of Jesus is not there. The coexist bumper sticker is the religion of America to, the, to a large degree. And those who dare, who dare challenge that will be persecuted. Now, Jesus had all these scathing things to say about those who rejected. Take a look at verses 25 and 30. Let's get how wonderful, though, Jesus brings us around. It says, at that time, Jesus answered and says, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Now, does, he got, does Jesus have something against wise and smart people? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who, because of their understanding of what they think wisdom is, and their intellect, they don't need this kind of Jesus that you fanatical preachers are talking about. That Jesus is the only way. Show me the evidences, or I won't believe in Jesus. I mean, I've talked to them. I've read about them. I see their scathing remarks about uh, biblical Christianity. It's, it's, it's beneath their dignity to submit to something so elementary. Okay? That's their attitude. They're arrogant. And here's what Jesus says. You know, Father, I'm glad that you hid these things, these blessings from those kind of people, of whom in his day were the scribes of the Pharisees. Primarily. And who Paul, Paul had to deal with were the Greek philosophers. Uh, the, those who were accepting that mindset. Oh, it's too good. As I told you, Pastor Joe was preaching in Mars Hill. And Mars Hill, remember in Athens, when the debate was going on, uh, the different philosophies, and Paul comes preaching this Jesus raised from the dead. They thought he was crazy. It's beneath our dignity to believe in something so stupid as that, Paul. And they called him a pseudo-philosopher. That's what they called him. Well, it was more of a name that was more derogatory. He says, you call yourself a philosopher, you're a false philosopher. They called him an idle babbler. What does this idle babbler have to say? And you get the same thing if years ago if you were on 
Phil Donahue show or others. What do you evangelical Christians want to say? Go ahead so we can just rake you over the coals because it's stupid what you have to say. God, Jesus says, I'm glad you kept the truth from those arrogant kind of people. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Do Do you catch that? Now, what we see here is this great relationship of the sovereignty of God in salvation with human responsibility. No one understands who Jesus is. No one believes Jesus unless Jesus wills it. Unless Jesus comes to you in grace and mercy, you will not see. Now, do you appreciate that? You better. Because remember, the Bible says we're all lost in sin. Isaiah says, nobody arouses himself to take hold of thee. And Jesus says, no one knows the Son except who the Son reveals him. Turn very quickly over to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 3 through verse 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, see a veil, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and I are not going to believe in Jesus unless Jesus removes the scales from your eyes. You're not going to believe in him. And what is this? It's an act of grace, right? It's an act of mercy. Unless Jesus wants you, you're not going to come. And yet at the same time, and here's the mystery, at the same time, what did Jesus say? You had John the Baptist and you had me. What what, What are you going to do with me? You didn't believe in the day of your visitation. You should have accepted me. And so what does he say? Verse 28, here's the loving Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now in the context, here's what we need to appreciate. Who are the weary and the heavy laden? Well, for one, not exclusively, but for one, it's all the people 
who are being burdened down by the traditions and the commandments of men, namely the Pharisees and the scribes, who burdened the people who said you had to do this in order for God to accept you. They were the Judaizers that Paul dealt with. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning the issue. Let's stop right there. Paul took great exception with these men who were insisting, oh, you can be a Christian only if you submit to the law of Moses in every regard. And so they were burdening the people. The Judaizers were going to burden the Christians with these regulations that the Judaizers were saying you had to submit to. Well, how did Peter respond? Look at verse 7 and 12, through 12. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating to what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So what was this burden? Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who think you've got to do something to obey something in order to be a Christian. Outside of believing in Jesus. You've got to submit to the law of Moses. That that's what you've got to do. You've got to do some good work. You've got to do some penance to prove yourself before God. What is my yoke? My yoke is easy. My yoke's not like that. My yoke is not burdensome. By the way, to show you how burdensome that yoke was, turn over to Galatians 5. Look at verses 1 through 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. My yoke, unlike the Pharisees, is easy. Are you convicted of sin? Are you one of the most sordid people that have ever lived? Years ago when I was college, there was some guy came talking about, come here, the, the most sordid life ever lived. I didn't go here and him. I can just look at my own heart. Are you convicted of sin? Come to me. I'm not going to burden you down with, with regulations. Believe in me, and you can find forgiveness no matter what you have done. No matter how people view you as the scum of the earth, you confess your sins, you ask for forgiven forgiveness, you run to Jesus and you will be saved. Now they may, the rest of your life, they may look down their noses at you because of your past life. But in Jesus, you have found forgiveness. And you will find rest for your souls. You will find peace. Whatever it is. Now it may not just be burdened down. It may not just be burdened down by a work salvation, it can be anything that life is like outside of Jesus. Jesus says, I will give you rest, I will give you peace at last. That which you long for, you can find it. You know what brought me to Christ? I'll end with my own testimony again briefly. In high school, I was an agnostic, went off to Utah just to go west. Someone shared the gospel with me. Didn't have a whole lot of impact, but I went and heard someone talk. They didn't have to tell me what I knew about myself. I had no purpose in life, none whatsoever. I had a lack of meaning. But when I heard them talk about Jesus... And talk about this peace and this joy that would come. My Mormon friend who'd come up to visit me was there at that meeting. And God did not choose to reveal Jesus to him that night. Because he argued with them. Jesus to me. He revealed Jesus to me. And within two days, this agnostic will give his life to Jesus. And I and you know there wasn't lightning bolts or nothing, but the emptiness was gone. It was gone. My sister in law later on will say and I see them about two months later. John, we don't know what happened to you, but we knew something had happened to you because your letters weren't the same. And the first words my dad said to me was, he walks up the stairs, I walk in the door with my oldest brother. So, he didn't say, hi, John, good to see you. He says, so, you become religious now. That was the first words out of his mouth. I sort of take it back. I didn't think of that. 
I'll tell you what it did. I, I seized the kingdom by force. I wanted purpose in life, and the Lord revealed himself to me. Now, he's going to either reveal himself to you, or he's not. And if someone said, well, how do I know if I'm going to be elect? As Joe Mark got that one, how do I know if I'm going to elect? And he says, well, just try to believe in Jesus. Let's see if you can muster up faith in Jesus. Can you do it? Let's just see. Believe in Jesus. I believed in Jesus. This gospel that I proclaim to you today is not the gospel that America wants to hear. It is the gospel that is rejecting. But in my charge to Presbytery, Friday night, because that's what my part of the ceremony was to charge Presbytery, I said, Men, we are the, the Presbytery is the guardian of the truth. And we are seen as fanaticals, among others. And we are seen as sticklers of the faith of the Westminster Confession. We are seen as sticklers to that. Well, hallelujah, we want to be sticklers to the truth. We want to be sticklers to the gospel. And we can lose it just like that if we're not careful. What America needs to hear is the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Don't listen to these false prophets. I know you may like them. No, that will not save you. Jesus is the only one who can save you. I'm telling you about this Jesus. I'm going to pray that he opens your eyes. That is the gospel that America needs. And that's what we've got to dedicate ourselves to as a body to see God use us to bring that gospel back to see souls brought to Christ. Let us pray.